shall never lose its power. And that means that the blood of Jesus is not just blood that gets us converted, but it's a blood that secures that promise that God is faithful to complete the work that he started in us. So I want you to remember that, just that concept today as we open the word to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're beginning today with the second part of verse 19. And it's appropriate on this day where we have baptisms to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then also what it does beyond our conversion. How the gospel is that lifeblood that brings us to the place of maturity that makes us actually look more like Jesus. Now, up until this point, Acts chapter 9, those of you who are guests with us, by the way, uh, we generally preach through books of the Bible. So we're walking through the book of Acts now. We took a little break recently. It did Joel coming back to Acts. And uh, so we're walking through and it just works out today that we're picking up right after the conversion of Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was known to be Saul prior to this. So we're seeing up to this point a foundation being laid for the church, a foundation in the gospel. The gospel has been in the past couple of chapters moving to new places, moving to different parts of the world. And then in chapter 9, we're sort of taking on this different storyline for a moment, and that is the storyline of Saul, his conversion, and uh, sort of a summary of what the beginning years of his Christian life looks like, which we don't know a whole lot about, honestly. That's where we are. We're in this, this sort of side storyline, only to come back to the progress of the gospel and the foundation of the church for the remainder of Acts. And we'll see how Paul works himself back into that. So let's read here, Acts chapter 9, Acts 9, beginning in the second part of verse 19. We'll read through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared to him how on the road, he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus, he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. 
And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray once more. Father, it's our great pleasure to come to you in prayer to call upon your great name that we can come to you as a father, your children. We come to you knowing that you have a perfect plan, that you execute your perfect will without fault, without failure, without any kind of thwarting at all. Father, we're thankful that we can look upon accounts like the conversion of Saul, one who deeply, deeply, hated your work as he came to realize and whose life was absolutely transformed. Father, we pray that we could see your transformative work in our lives here and now for those who are being saved, for those who are growing in the likeness of Christ, those who have been walking with Jesus for decades. Show your transformative power among us among the world, that they would know that you really sent Jesus to die for sin, to ransom a people for God's own possession. Do this work, Father, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We have here in these verses a a new man. A new creature, a new creation in Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians says. Paul wrote it. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and new things have come. Paul himself is that new creation, bearing fruit, revealing the change that's been wrought in him by the Holy Spirit. And we need to know that these things don't prove themselves the the evidence of a new creation, bearing fruit, showing change. These things do not reveal themselves in a vacuum or in a a nice, easy atmosphere where everything is good. But they're revealed in the challenges of normal life. Really, we could say the normal Christian life. I'm thankful for our brother Mark here who frequently talks about how when he came to faith, he had the idea that things were going to get immensely easier. And in fact, as he discovered, and we all kind of discover, when you turn to Christ, uh, things actually get a lot harder. That's the truth. Paul had to experience these same things. I'll give you this theme for today. New life in Christ bears fruit in the midst of significant challenges. New life in Christ bears fruit in the midst of significant challenges. And I didn't say this at the beginning, but we're in the series in Acts, and we've titled it Saved to be Sent. And I hope you get the idea there. Saved to be sent. Whoop, Siri got the idea. (laughs) Saved to be sent. She's done that before to me, once or twice. New life in Christ bears fruit in the midst of significant challenges. I think from this text, if your Bible uh, breaks it down this way, you'll see like three 
paragraphs or three brief sections. And I want to use those and give you three realities that follow conversion. Three realities that follow conversion. The first one is immediate proof. There is and there ought to be immediate proof following conversion. We saw where uh, Paul, Saul, Paul was, was baptized and now we're seeing the immediate fruit of that. It's the fruit that we're talking about, this immediate proof. It shows itself, this proof, in three different ways. And this first one, man, y'all know, y'all Cedarview folks know that this is the soapbox I love. And I gave a lot of time to it last week. So we're just going to spend a brief time here this morning. But the first thing is Christian community. Get this, Paul, this, this dude is educated beyond belief. He is a Roman citizen He's a Jew and he's been trained in Greek culture. He knew everything that you could know in those days about the world, about philosophy, about the Bible as it was. Paul educated immediately. You see what he did? For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. This was a lengthy period of time. He was with the disciples. He was in Christian community. So Paul the educated needed the influence of other believers to come to a better understanding of Scripture. Remember, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, the best trained guy in the world. He didn't come to Christ and say, hey, I've already got it all down pat. No, he said, I need the believers. And really the challenge for him, some argue, as we're about to talk about a time he spent away in, in what then was Arabia. Some argue that during this time that he spent away, he actually had to take the Jewish faith that he knew so well and then pass it all through the lens of Christ. So you can understand how that happens. I know everything there is to know about Jewish, Jewish faith, but can you really understand the scriptures if you don't know Christ? The answer is no. So even Paul recognized that there was a new element, the most important element, because all the scriptures, Jesus said, is about him. All the law and the prophets, it's about him. He needed to learn not just facts from the Bible, but he needed to learn the person of Christ. He entered into this discipleship, this accountability. And really, folks, as it applies to us, this is the gift that we've been given in the Local church, y'all have heard before, maybe you don't ever plant one row of corn, do you? No, because it won't cross-pollinate. You really won't have any fruit. You won't have any corn. You have to plant at least a few rows of corn together, and they can cross-pollinate those rows, and then it produces so much more corn. This is the truth of the Christian life. We must... And we, in our day, man, we, we live with a, a built-in understanding of my individuality and my rights and what I want, what I want to do. I am the center of everything. I get to be Lord over everything, even the church. That's what the world will tell you. So the church must meet my needs. It must do what I need it to do. In reality, that's backwards. We can't live in that kind of isolation. In fact, when we come to faith in Jesus, we're submitting ourselves to one another. That's what Ephesians tells us. 
we start esteeming one another more highly than we esteem ourselves. We seek to outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12. There's a change that takes place, and Paul understood it. We must understand it, but we all in some ways short sell the importance of community So can I persuade you today to stop trying to outsmart God in your Christian life and just do what he prescribed, which is life in the local church. It's life with with pastors assigned to care for your souls, brothers and sisters that take up the task of your spiritual formation, doctrine that keeps you falling, falling off, keeps you from falling off the left or the right. Find somebody with their Bible in their closet all by themselves trying to understand it. I'll show you somebody that is on the way to some terrible heresy. This is what we have together. It's guardrails, it's accountability that uphold a standard for you to aim for. And above all, above all, love from God that makes this all effective. 1 John 3.14, this deals with our salvation. What does he say? We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Christian community is the immediate proof, but also we see bold proclamation. Bold proclamation. He comes to the synagogues and he says, he is, Jesus is the son of God. And that seemed to be an impactful discovery for Paul as he recounts throughout his epistles. And this happens to the amazement of onlookers. If you look back, when, when God appointed Ananias to be the one who meets him and, and takes him in, do you, do you see what Ananias said in response? Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And there he has authority from the chief, chief priests to bind all those who call on your name. So even Ananias, when he got word, was like, I don't know about this guy. And all these people are amazed that this is the same guy who devoted his life to the extinction of the Christian gospel. Pole Hill says, one could even say that his zeal as a Christian was even stronger than his former zeal as a persecutor. We can turn to the words that he gave, again, the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 9, 16, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Immediately, he knew this is what he needed to do. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And then 2 Corinthians 5, verses 4, and then complete the thought with 20, he says, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us to do what? To implore people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Bold proclamation. There's Christian community. There's bold proclamation. And the third part of this immediate proof, spiritual strength. The words right there show us that he was increasing all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He was empowered. That word 
uh, more in strength is the idea of being empowered for the task. And what does he do? He confounds. So these people were listening to him and they're, they're faithful Jews and they're perplexed at the things that he is saying. You're telling me all that's about Jesus? He goes on to say that he proved this, this idea, this, this word is an idea of like things being joined together. And you uh, who are Christians, you experience this when you open the Old Testament and you have that discovery that for so long I didn't realize it, but now I realize that this text is about Jesus. And so Paul is making these proofs. He's, he's building these connections so that they're being confounded. Now, it says he gained strength. Now, I think this is really interesting for a man so empowered. But when you read his epistles, he doesn't talk a lot, a lot about his own power. In fact, what does he do? Paul later more describes his weakness. So it's interesting that a man so empowered would be so boastful about his own weakness. The kind of strength does not come from a debate class or learning airtight arguments. It comes from the humbling knowledge of the sovereign God. Paul discovered it, and have you discovered it? You're going to discover it again, I'm sure. When we are weak, he is strong. Paul's conversion set him on this path of increasing spiritual strength. Now think about today our baptism folks. Think about them. Consider Paul as well. Imagine if Paul saw his conversion as the end goal. I've made it. I've arrived. Sometimes I wonder in, in, in our day, Christians... Sometimes I think like, man, some people's theme for their entire Christian life is once saved, always saved. Like, amen for security, but that shouldn't be the theme of your Christian life. The theme of your Christian life ought to be, I am going hard after Christ. He is the end goal. He is the prize to which we have been called, Philippians 3. And so, if we, don't, if we don't look at our Christian life as like this relentless labor to know him, to know Christ, then we're, we're destined for a weak ministry if we're even saved. Imagine... If he saw his conversion as the end goal, imagine if the church saw, saw, saw it that way. Oh, well, man, we got, we got Saul. Let's put him on the poster. Let's put him on the promo material. He's a good one. He's in. Don't let him leave. Now, many people have looked at mission this way. They've looked at salvation this way. And it's led to a lot of Christians. Can we put it in the terms of strength? It's led a lot of Christians to atrophy. Their spiritual muscles actually dry up and deteriorate.
immediate proof. Christian community, bold proclamation, spiritual strength. You get to verse 22 and commentators consistently make an important note about Paul's story that Luke doesn't really record here. Uh, If you look in verse 23, I'm going to get there in just a moment, but when many days had passed, Luke is sort of just like passing over this big portion of time. Uh, Paul actually in Galatians explains what happens during this portion of time. Galatians 1, beginning of verse 15. So Paul is writing here to the Galatians. He said, but when he who had set me apart before I was born (laughs) and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now that time, that stretch of time in Arabia amounted to about three years. And that's what I was talking about earlier, that time when he had to learn the scriptures over again with Christ as the the center, Christ as the, the, the only interpretive tool. So when he says, I didn't go... I didn't didn't immediately consult with anyone. This is in regard to his apostleship. See, Paul, his his apostleship, the fact that he was called directly by Jesus on that road to Damascus, that makes him an apostle. And so he didn't need to go to the other apostles to legitimize his apostolic authority. That's what he is saying right here in Galatians chapter 1. But in saying that, he helps us to see what is actually going on in the life of Paul as he moves on from these days to Arabia and then back to Damascus. It leads us to our second reality, eventual opposition. Eventual opposition. So we have immediate proof. Secondly, we have eventual opposition. So Luke doesn't say it, but we've got three years that have passed right here. If you look back at verse 16, you'll see where Jesus foretells the the ministry of Paul in these terms. He says, for I will show him, talking about Paul to Ananias, he says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So now we're here, okay? We're starting to get a glimpse of this as he has been away and he returns. Many days had passed. He suffers in Damascus. And then he later, as we're about to read, suffers in Jerusalem. In Damascus, as you can imagine, the frustration with Paul's zeal and knowledge made him an impactful figure in the synagogues. He was persuasive in his argumentation, though he himself says that he's a weak speaker. And much like Jesus and much like Stephen, if you can't keep those teachings quiet, then your only other option is murder. We got to get rid of this dude. That's what they're saying. So they plotted to kill him. Now, let's draw some application here. When Christ grabs a hold of someone's life, The enemy will do whatever it takes to destroy that trophy of grace. 
It wasn't any surprise to Paul that he was enduring these things. If anything, he embraced suffering with a smile on his face and maintained that immeasurable joy that he had in Christ. So these folks sat and they watched him day and night looking for the opportunity to end him. You need to be aware. You need to be aware, Christian, of the opposition that you'll face as a Christian in this world. Whether it comes in the form of persecution or work-related obstacles or friction in your own family, whether it comes directly from the schemes of Satan and his demons, whether it comes from your sinful flesh, you knew that, right? It wasn't always Satan that made you do it. You just wanted to because you're sinful. Whether it comes from him or your sinful flesh or from the systems of this world, you will face all kinds of opposition. Sooner or later, it will come, and it may seem insurmountable, like you won't survive, but you can claim the promise that Paul claimed, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that simply means that what Christ has called you to do, he's also empowered you to do. And Paul learned that he was happy to die and be with Christ or to live and continue in ministry. But what happened is Paul, as we read here, found a hole in the wall. His guys found a hole in the wall by which he could escape. And you may not always find escape through a hole in the wall, but you will always find a hiding place in the cleft of the rock. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. You will face that opposition, but in the midst of that opposition, in the midst of the challenges, you will have Christ. And maybe we could say much like Jesus who manages to slip away at the perfect time. It says here, his disciples lowered him in a basket through this opening in the wall. And that phrase is striking to me, the phrase, his disciples. It shows us two things. One, Paul never abandoned Christian community. Two, Paul never excused himself from the task of making disciples. So when you stay faithful to the task that God has put before each one of us, Opposition will come, but Christ, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, will empower you for the task. You will face this opposition eventually. And I wonder if we could have the perspective that Paul ended up having on his sufferings and afflictions and all the times he was beaten and shipwrecked and left for dead. And this time when he was, he was the, the subject of a murder plot And he says, but I got away. He says, I am faithful in all of these things. And he learns to boast in those afflictions. It shows the faithfulness of Christ. So we have, first off, this immediate proof. We have, secondly, this eventual opposition, a third reality that we see here is inevitable difficulty. Inevitable difficulty, verses 26 to 31. 
if we're tracking with Paul's timeline, we see him then come to Jerusalem in the third year after his conversion. In the third year after his conversion. Commentators note the fact that Paul's apostleship was frequently challenged, even by opponents who also claimed to be followers of Jesus. So as he recounts that, that occasion in Galatians, which we've already referenced, he recounts that in order to show, as Paul Hill says, that he was not subordinate or less than the other apostles. Christ legitimized Paul's calling long before he arrived in Jerusalem. And he stood before the other apostles. So Luke's purpose here is to show that he was in fact accepted by the other apostles and woven into the church's advance, that he in fact was sent on mission. And Paul Hill continues here, and I think he's really helpful. He says, Paul was not a maverick missionary, nor were his Gentile converts maverick Christians. The apostles provided an unbroken continuity with the risen Lord and with his commission. So Paul's acceptance by these apostles assures this continuity and the legitimacy of mission to the Gentiles. So do you see what's happening here? Some of y'all are just like, man, I just went to sleep on that one. I just want you to know, as you read your Bible, what's happening here. That's part of the explanation. So you see how Paul is, by coming to Jerusalem, he is now sort of submitting himself to the mission that's already going on. And he begins to work on mission. And you see what happens. But before he is accepted... The Bible, Luke records here, it says Paul attempted to join these believers. The idea that he has tried over and over again. The language suggests that he's tried multiple, multiple times, and every time he's been given the cold shoulder. Like Ananias and others, the astonishment of Paul's conversion may have been just too difficult to get over. MacArthur suggests their suspicion came from fear that he was trying to destroy the church from the inside out. And we have seen that kind of work before, I'm sure. Wolves in sheep's clothing, those unregenerates that crept in unaware, Jude says. So their fear was understandable. We don't want him coming on the inside and then being like a spy and doing this kind of damage. Their fear was understandable. Either way, they were not taking Paul at face value. And then we have Barnabas, the mediator, the son of encouragement. Barnabas steps in and he testifies to the legitimacy of Paul's conversion. He testifies to his preaching ministry and he bridged that gap of suspicion for these apostles and the church. If I can make some application here. Difficulty in the life of the church is an inevitable reality. But we must welcome the trusted mediators to step in and bridge the gaps among us. The messiness of church life, suspicions that arise, it's, it's crazy to me in our day and age, like how many church folk are just suspicious of their pastor or their elders? That's dangerous, folks. 
that kind of messiness and that kind of suspicion, the kind of conflicts that occur, the rifts that appear many times, even though no one's at fault. Hey, it was just a miscommunication. These things do happen, but we cannot respond to those things and be like the world in it, seeking only to preserve ourselves, running away from the difficulty that God has chosen to use to conform us to the image of Christ. We must give ear to the advocates, the trusted testimony, the mediators that put into practice the gospel that we believe and proclaim. Barnabas, in some sense, is a type of Christ because he is a mediator. And Christ, our mediator, the only mediator, by the way, between God and man. Christ, our mediator, reconciled us to God. And since he did that by his bloody death on the cross and his resurrection, our mountains that that pop up in the life of the church they go back to being molehills because we have the gospel. We navigate that difficulty. There may be some repentance for some in thinking about how we have treated conflict in the life of the church in the past. Maybe there's repentance. Now you would think that Paul's acceptance and recognition as an apostle would amount to smooth sailing on mission. It's not what happens. Paul in the early days, if I, can, if I can use this kind of language, Paul in the early days was what we might call a lightning rod for conflict, for turmoil. I won't speculate as to why that is the case. The response we see only shows the difficulty, though. It says he was, he was welcomed in. They accepted him. He went in and out, is what it says, among them. From that point forward, Paul was forever tied to the local church, yet his ministry, as he carried on, was so piercing to the Hellenists, that is, the Greek-speaking Jews, he, it was so piercing, it was so offensive to the Hellenists that they, too, sought to murder him. So from Damascus to Jerusalem, people wanted to murder Paul. When we looked at Stephen's ministry and his death, you may recall, we drew some striking parallels to Paul's ministry in so many ways, Paul picked up where Stephen left off. However, it seems at this point, and this is the working of the sovereign God, it seemed at this point that the mission field was not quite ready for Paul. So his calling was to the Gentiles. We're, we're, we're on the verge of seeing all that just, just unpack before our, our eyes and acts. His calling was to the Gentiles. And at this point on mission, that mission field is really just opening up. And so we see their conclusion. The brothers decided. They decided it would be best for Paul. It would be best for the church to send him home to Tarsus. And get this. So he spent three years in Arabia. They send him home to Tarsus for a season that probably amounted to 10 years. 
A lot of us probably didn't even realize that. You think, oh yeah, Saul became Paul and he became a great missionary. Well, there's probably a lot of heartache you're unaware of because it's not recorded in Scripture. Undoubtedly, as you consider what this may have looked like for him, it could be a holding pattern of sorts. We learn in a couple of chapters that Barnabas went to Tarsus to retrieve Paul. Nevertheless, God was preparing Paul for the exact time when he was needed for the mission. So we got three years in Arabia, we got 10 years at home, and those 10 years are what commentators call Paul's silent years. Now, I'm going to make some application, and this will be our conclusion here. There are likely some here today that you are wrestling with God's calling on your lives. You'll embrace the title of the series. Hey, I'm saved to be sent. I just don't know what that means. <laughs> I'm saved to be sent. Maybe you feel like you've been sidelined. Like God sent me to Arabia. God sent me to Tarsus for who knows how long. You feel like you've been sidelined. And I would, I would suggest to you, would you be content to learn that he has called you for a long season of just being faithful on mission here before you go on mission there? Your mission may look like just walking in obedience, serving the church, loving people, sharing the gospel. Man, if, if you master those four things, Come back to me because I haven't yet. Maybe that's what the mission is for you now, that holding pattern, if you will. If you're wrestling with that, consider that. Maybe there's, there are others among us who really have no idea, no idea what God's equipped you to do on mission. You've never even really thought about it, maybe until now. And your whole summary of Obeying God is just, hey, I need to read my Bible and show up on Sunday. I would tell you that's great, but there is much more. I would invite you to engage the Lord on what's next for you, that you would seek his discernment, seek his help, discerning your calling. You were truly saved to be sent. And still others have yet to consider that God is simply calling you to believe the gospel because you know, you know full well your life has not been transformed. Maybe you check the box that says Christian on a survey, but you don't know what it means to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't know what it means to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit emerging from your life. A life that is, what we said earlier, relentless after the knowledge of Christ. If you need the gospel today, if you need salvation today, if you want the security that is found in Jesus alone, you may repent, the Bible says, of your sin. Turn from your sin. Place your faith in Jesus. The Romans 10 says, and you will be saved. You know what you do after that? You proclaim that publicly through baptism and then join us on this oh-so-difficult but oh so wonderful mission of looking like Christ and making the gospel known for the rest of our lives. That's the response. So believe on him and be saved.
See, God intends to give new life. He intends to bear fruit through that new life, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the challenges. Let's pray. We'll respond. I'll be available down front if you want to pray with me or counsel with me. Father God, it's our pleasure once again to open your word.